Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in the program, I'll be chatting with a physicist who has written extensively about the physics of hearing and sight, and we'll find out if a small crustacean is indeed the loudest creature in the oceans. But first, graphene is a sheet of carbon just one atom thick. But despite its simplicity, the material has several unique properties that make it eminently suited for a wide range of applications. The challenge is finding ways to exploit these properties to create practical commercial devices. As Tammy Freeman discovers in this interview with a researcher who is developing medical technologies using graphene. I'm speaking today with Costas Costarellos, Chair of Nanomedicine at the University of Manchester and a Professor at the Catalan Institute of Nanoscience and Nanotechnology. Hello, Costas. Hello, hi, Tan. Costas is also part of the Graphene flagship, a European research initiative that aims to bring graphene innovation out of the lab and into commercial applications. One of the initiative's spin-offs is a company called InBrain Neuroelectronics, which has just received a large funding investment. So, Costas, can you tell us a bit more about InBrain and its relationship with the Graphene flagship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, InBrain is a, really a brainchild of um, a lot of work that we have done uh, in the context of the Graphene flagship. So just to put your audience in context here, the Graphene flagship is the uh, largest, one of the two largest single project investments of the European Commission. It uh, is about a billion euro total budget, not uh, only um, European Commission contribution. It accounts for other uh, contributions from different partners. And so the European Commission contribution, to be exact, is about half a billion um, for 10 years. The project started in 2013. Clearly, we started thinking and exploring what kind of emphasis and focus we will have in the different areas of this research program uh, even earlier than that. And the emphasis from uh, very early on in our conversations and mindset around graphene in biomedical applications in the context of the graphene flagship has always been to um, explore devices. So our idea was that if we focus around devices, biomedical devices, med tech, we would have a chance in clinical translation in the context of the graphene flagship project, which is a 10-year project. Again, your audience is not familiar with biomedical, uh, pharmaceutical, or biotech uh, translation into the clinic and uh, reaching and technologies reaching patients. Um, this is extremely optimistic, to say the least. Uh, usually a drug needs about 20 to 25 years, in best case scenario, to reach the clinic uh, from exploration. Um, in the context, therefore, of the Graphene flagship, we wanted to have to give ourselves the best chance possible to translate some of the technologies or one or two of the technologies that we're exploring um, into, into the clinic. And that's what InBrain is all about. 
in Brain in the context of the Graphene flagship project is one of our commitments. It's, it's a vehicle for us to deliver the graphene technologies that we explored and developed into the clinic for the benefit of patients and clinicians. Therefore, even though, of course, InBrain is a, is a vehicle, it, it also has gained its own momentum and own life, of course, because for us coming from the graphene flagship is a vehicle, but once you spin out a company, of course, it gains its own life and its own momentum and its own uh, kind of self-sustainability and existence. Answering your question, what is the relationship between InBrain and graphene flagship? InBrain for us uh, is really the spearheading activity that will allow translation, clinical translation of some of our devices, graphene-based devices in the clinic. Okay. And what exactly is the device that InBrain is developing? Yeah. So this, again, falls back to our conversations in the early stages of the graphene flagship, which were quite high risk at that time. At least I felt this way. So when you're designing, let me take a step back. When you're designing a research program of that magnitude, you have two options. You either go broad, so you're trying to uh, spread the investment funding and activity and effort into many different areas of biomedicine, to be specific in our case. So we could have touched upon, say, cancer therapeutics or cardiovascular therapeutics or some other, you know, antimicrobials, um, et cetera, et cetera. We decided early on, because of what I mentioned earlier, uh, because we wanted to focus around devices, the work around devices, to have an emphasis around neurological disorders. We wanted to build devices that will benefit patients for, uh, that suffered from a variety of different neurological disorders. And these devices are what are called uh, neural interface devices. Just to give you a couple of examples, a neural interface device is the device that a lot of people with hearing problems get implanted with, you know, at the back of the ear, if you've noticed. Uh, this is a neural interface device. It's a device that has a component, usually an electrode, a metallic electrode of some sort, that will interface with a, a neural component of the particular function you're trying to improve or alleviate pain from or whatever other um, uh, intervention you're trying to achieve. So it's a device, a device that is interfacing with a nervous system, central or peripheral. That's what we're building. Inclusion of graphene has always been the driver here, of course. Uh, graphene is an alternative proposition we have explored, but always the emphasis and interest of our efforts had been to produce uh, advanced new generation devices that will improve neurological disorders. Okay, and, and what's, the, what's the advantages of using graphene to create these brain interfaces rather than like the metals that are used today? Yeah, that's the catch-22. That's what every single uh, conference attendee and investor <laughs> and peer reviewer is asking us, of course. And this is the obvious, actually, question. It's fair enough. It's an obvious question. We uh, also wanted to convince ourselves early on that we have a compelling proposition um, to offer with the inclusion of graphene in um, those devices. I, I want to state that we are talking about two different 
functions that we're trying to improve on. One is recording. So a device that interfaces with the central or peripheral nervous system could record activity from the nervous system or put out electrical current or put electricity in the nervous system. So um, intervene in the functions of the nervous system. So there are two different functions here, which have two different material specifications. In the context of recording, what you need to have is an interface that will record ideally everything, broadly, specifically, at a very wide frequency range, and extremely accurately. So even the tiniest whispers of the neural system, you, you want to be able to record. In order to achieve that, you need one type of graphene. We call it CVD graphene. You want a pristine graphene with no defects. For the second function, where you're trying to put electrical current into the nervous system and interfere with the functions of the nervous system, what you need in that case is what the engineers called uh, high charge injection capacity. So the capacity of the device to put electrical current into the nervous system at high levels without breaking down, of course. So the combination of injecting high electrical currents into the nervous system by maintaining structural stability of the device is the prerequisite here. We believe that in both cases, we have compelling propositions with graphene, not with the same graphene materials. So the design for the recording devices is extremely and almost diametrically different to the, uh, the specifications, material specifications that uh, we've incorporated into the devices that need high charge injection capacity. Um, the, the bottom line is that graphene offered at the beginning a very versatile component to incorporate into those devices. Uh, we hypothesized at early on that we could improve on the recording and hearing the activity of the nervous system. We also hypothesized that with a completely different design of graphene materials, we could inject uh, high levels of electrical current into the nervous system uh, by maintaining stability. I think that we have now evidence that it's gradually coming out uh, in the peer-reviewed literature, which uh, really compellingly proves and illustrates a hypothesis on which we based on. So in-brain, in that context, is really the translation of those advantages into a specific product, if you wish, that would be um, used by clinicians and their patients. And when you're using graphene, can you make these interfaces, the electrodes, can you make them much smaller? Of course, the miniaturization of the device is a given with any, 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 in any context. I mean, the advantage that graphene offers there is that you can get, again, very high injection capacity at, at minimal uh, surface area and mm -hmm. very um, uh, sensitive recording capabilities at minimum surface area. But if you look at the device macroscopically, the actual graphene components are really the minority component there. Most of it is the substrate, the, which, is, which again, you see a, a move in the, in the technology space um, towards uh, substrates that are extremely flexible, 
bendable, structurally stable, soft, in order to uh, interface with the central nervous system and the tissues much more seamlessly, et cetera, et cetera. But these are developments that everybody does, whether they're using um, metallic contacts or graphene-based contacts, it's the same. The only advantage I think we can offer there by using graphene is the capacity to have a very thin film. Hmm. Okay. And what stage is this technology at? Have um, you been testing the graphene brain interfaces yet? So we've been testing the, uh, all of those interfaces, both of those interfaces, both the recording and the charge injection, what we call electrical stimulation uh, electrodes. Um, we have been testing them um, extensively in preclinical models, um, mainly rodents, but also larger species and proof of concept larger species, just to show the safety uh, of the device. And we are at the moment, as we speak, designing the first in human clinical uh, trial up in Manchester at the NHS Salford Royal. Um, we will be using uh, the first generation of those devices in a proof of concept uh, human study. Excellent. And so InBrain's just received an investment of 14.35 million euro. Um, how will this funding be used? I think it's very, very straightforward how this funding will be used and how this funding should be used. The governmental support and funding we've received, and we're very grateful to all of those bodies that have funded this work, can only reach to a certain level. We can only run uh, a limited number of clinical studies. This funding is exactly what we need in order to get more of those technologies in more extensive st clinical studies, in multi-center trials. The short answer to your question is the vast majority of this investment will be um, uh, utilized in order to run more clinical trials more clinical studies, gain confidence uh, in the hands of the clinical community uh, that these devices can actually bring a difference. Okay. And, and um, this first clinical trial that you mentioned that's sort of just about starting up, what is that? Um, what sort of disorders is that going to be looking at? I mean, this is just a trial that we are uh, running in parallel with uh, metallic. Ele metallic electrodes are used in these uh, procedures. It's, it's in the context of a brain um, glioblastoma, brain cancer um, uh, re resection uh, surgery operation. Usually, I mean, routinely, uh, the neurosurgeons in this context are using metallic-based um, devices, neural interface devices, primarily to determine the margins of resection, mm -hmm. but at the same time to detect and make sure that they are not damaging any functional structures in the brain during their operation. We will have a side-by-side -side, uh, graphene-based such devices to make sure, A, of the safety of the device, and B, at least equal, if not better, functionality for the neurosurgeon. Okay. And then sort of looking further into the future, what do you see ultimately as the main applications for these graphene brain interfaces? That's a very good question, and I, I will be, I mean, I guess you're, by definition, allowing me to become a little bit futuristic on this one, because I cannot really tell exactly how the space will develop. Um, I think graphene can have a role there in general around brain interfaces. We see a lot of interest 
from def- different angles and different uh, disease indications, particularly in the context, of course, of neurological disorders. But we see also another space that has been kind of experimented, piloted, even from large pharma groups like GSK, um, where there is a what we call a space uh, called electroceuticals, which is the intervention of devices, implantable devices, uh, for the treatment of uh, long, long-term diseases, such as, you know, diabetes is one, rheumatoid arthritis is another one. So there is a space for these interface devices that is beyond the brain. So the brain is the one we're focusing on at the moment. We would like to offer um, options for uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, brain cancer, uh, epilepsy. And these devices and such devices uh, and such applications are already in existence and they are clinically used to a large or uh, uh, less extent. But I think where the game changer will happen is when large pharma group, all of the large pharma groups having an electroceuticals department, an electroceuticals program, whereby the interventions and the patient population that will receive those implantable devices will uh, really dramatically increase. Okay, great. Thanks for your time speaking with us today. Thank you, Tammy. Pleasure. That was Tammy Freeman in conversation with Costas Costarellis. A huge chunk of physics is concerned with waves, so it's not surprising that some physicists take a keen interest in hearing and sight. Recently, I chatted with an American physicist about the science of our eyes and ears, a conversation that covered everything from the amazing eyesight of the mantis shrimp to how technologies are changing our perceptions of sound and light. I'm joined down the line by Ben DeMeo, who is Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of West Georgia in Carrollton. Ben has just published the second edition of his book, The Everyday Physics of Hearing and Vision, which, like Physics World, is published by the Institute of Physics. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Now, Ben, your academic career as a condensed matter physicist has focused on topics including high-temperature superconductivity, diamond nanoparticles, and even the study of ancient pottery. But what made you interested in writing about hearing and vision? Well, first of all, it's very important to us way we interact with our universe is through our senses, and two of the main ones are hearing and vision, and they're both physics-based. And as a physics teacher for many years, I enjoyed uh, writing about this and explaining a little bit so that people can better interact with their universe. And one thing that you cover in your book is hearing loss and, and some of the technologies that can help overcome it. Now, this is something that's becoming increasingly important with aging populations in many countries. Why do people lose their hearing as they get older, and what can be done about it? That's an interesting question. It turns out that the human body, as it's designed, it's only designed to last 40 years. 
And after 40 years, things start to go. And one of those is hearing. It's just a matter of aging. Now, some of the things that can be done about it, besides being lucky, is that they have now devices and techniques for addressing hearing loss that are not really aging problems, but mostly involve total hearing loss. Even in the earliest times, people use large cone-like devices to assist their hearing because it's one of those things that goes as you get older. Now, it's very exciting, all of the technology that is addressing this problem, including hearing aids. A revolution has occurred in hearing aids in the last several years. They're becoming smaller and more powerful. And instead of just amplifying the sounds that hit your ears, they're now taking a more active approach and actually inserting devices into your head that will pick up this uh, these sounds and produce them to your ear. They are now even implanting artificial cochlea into the, your head to send direct signals directly to the brain. And some hearing losses are due to genetic defects, and they're using the CRISPR technology to actually insert items into your cells to address uh, genetic defects that might occur. So this is a very exciting time to be around, and not just in the area of hearing loss, but other areas as well. And in your book, you talk about cochlear implants. Um, I mean, that sounds to me like there's a lot of physics going on there. What, what, what is a, a, a cochlear implant, and, and how does it help one's hearing? If the cochlea is uh, defective, uh, then what you can do is intercept the process of the sound waves hitting the ear, being transmitted through the middle ear, through the tiny bones, and going into the cochlea where the actual sensory cells exist. And so you could actually bypass that mechanical process by stimulating the hearing sensory cells directly. One interesting fact about this is that even though your eyes have 115 million sensory cells in each eye, the cochlea has only about 40,000, which is a lot. And so one thing that's happening is they will insert coiled up little device that will directly stimulate the hearing cells and send this down the auditory pathway to the brain. It's a very complicated, amazing process that occurs, not just with your hearing, but also with the other senses, how this works. But anyway, they're making best strides in addressing the hearing problems, especially the ones that are involved the defective actions of the cochlea itself. The hearing system has only recently been revealed because the cochlea and the other organs in the ear are lodged in the most dense bones of your whole body. And so it was only very recently that they could actually investigate these because they had to work with the dead people. And as soon as you die, these things start to deteriorate. And once you start operating on them with chisels and hammers, you can very easily damage what you're trying to study. But they have a pretty good understanding of how it works now. And Ben, I was really pleased uh, when, when, I, when I looked at your book and I saw that you had uh, quite a bit on the mantis shrimp, which I have to say <laughs> is, you know, at Physics World, the mantis shrimp is, is definitely our favorite 
crustacean, probably <laughs> our our favorite animal. It has, I mean, it has some incredible uh, acoustic and and optical properties. Can, can can you tell us a little bit about the mantis shrimp? Maybe starting with its amazing eyesight. Well, it does have a tremendously amazing uh, system of uh, eyes. It can detect more colors than we can, and it can detect polarized light. It's a it, two eyes uh, act individually. Uh, in all, it's just an uh, amazing optical system. And its nickname is the Thumb Smasher because it has, there are two versions of the mantis shrimp. One of them has these spear-like things that are as long as its whole body, and it will zet, s- snap out and capture uh, fish and other things that it eats. It's, those are the, the ones that gave it its name because they look very similar to the uh, arms of a praying mantis. Now, my favorite is the other type, and that is the smasher version of the arms. And these two club-like devices work amazingly fast and are extremely powerful. And when smashed together, they can actually cause sonoluminescence, which is when the sound is powerful enough, light is emitted. They also, if you put one in an aquarium, it's been known that they can crack the aquarium glass, which is not too good for the mantis shrimp. But what they do is they sneak up on something and clash these two things together and stun their prey and then eat them. And and uh, I think you talk about the mantis shrimp. It, does it make the loudest noise in the ocean, or or is that a whale? Is there some debate about what's louder, a mantis, a shrimp, or a whale? Well, they're both pretty loud. I I don't know if you could really have a contest. As, of course, the sperm whale has a powerful noise producing system. It uses it like the seals for uh, or the porpoises for echolocation. And where they hunt giant squid, there's no light. And so they're able to find the giant squid and eat them. But those are the those two things make the loudest animal sounds in the ocean. But there's another, the loudest ocean sound called the, the moop. And it was detected by several microphone systems in the Pacific Ocean. And for a long time, I didn't know what caused it. But now they think it was a landslide. An, under the ocean. That's pretty loud, uh, the loudest sound under the ocean, but the, the, sh- the shrimp and the whale make the two largest, loudest animal sound, sounds in the ocean. And you mentioned the, uh, the giant squid. Am I, am I right in thinking that it has the, the largest eye of any animal? Is that right? It's the largest uh, eye of any living animal. There was a dinosaur-like creature that had a a little bit bigger eye. And interestingly enough, they both operate in the same region of the ocean as the sperm whale. And so the squid and this dinosaur thing had visionary approach, whereas the whale has a more sophisticated sound approach. And, and whenever I read a book, um, I I love to learn something new. And um, I think I learned a new word and I have to say, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, Ben, so I might ask you. But you, you write about something called a parietal eye. Have I said that oh, yeah. properly? Par- Is it? Uh, yes, that's close enough. It's the parietal eye, the way the I pronounce it. Parietal eye. Yes. Right. And that, 
And that's something that's found on on animals such as lizards. Yes. And, and they use these these single eyes to detect light levels. So right. h- how does this eye work? Because it's completely different from most eyes, isn't it? It's an interesting thing about the way that the senses pick up signals. These are signals are very, very small, sounds or light. The uh, basis of uh, the sensory cells is something called the trigger effect. And so if you take a... Uh, look at a gun at the cartridge what happens is is a very small input of energy will produce a big effect and so the the cartridge of the pistol has a stored up potential energy in the gunpowder and a very very small input energy produces a big effect and our eyes in particular and the parietal eye and the other light sensing organs and sound sensing organs store up chemical potential energy and a very small input single photon in some cases a very small sound wave will open up a chemical door inside the cell and release the stored up chemical energy and so the parietal eye is mainly just a light sensor unlike the eyeball, which is forms an image. There's just a few sensory cells, but that's all it takes. And there's a vestigial type of organ in our own bodies deep in our head, so it doesn't work anymore. But the lizards have this up on top of their head, and so they use it to detect light levels, I guess, when their eyes are closed or something. There's a suggestion that that this eye is connected to um, managing our circadian rhythm, and and there's a connection to um, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, which is something that can affect people who live at high latitudes, <laughs> such as yes. England, yes. Uh, for example. <laughs> um, what, what, what's the connection there between this parietal eye and and SAD? Well, I guess that would be a subject for future research. I just they just now found out that SAD does have an effect, so I'm sure that there are a lot of people trying to figure that out now. There are all sorts of mysterious things like that going on, and and one of them is the close association of the female cycle with the phases of the moon. They're about the same, and nobody knows. Why, for example, or maybe even if, that the full moon somehow affects us. And some people have suggested that more murders occur and more deaths occur and more violence occurs around the full moon. And so these type of thing, I'm sure there are so many graduate students around these days that are looking for things to do that this is being investigated. And this whole area is interesting because it's continually developing. There are new things happening every day. And you, your uh, publication is important for keeping people up with things like that. And Ben, in, in your book, um, you also look at, at sight loss and some of the technologies that can help people regain at least some of their sight. Um, so, so why do people lose their sight? And, and how can technologies like retinal implants help? I think that uh, it's goes back to the whole thing of aging. And my, my uncle told me long ago, when you get old, there are three things that go out on you. Your eyes, your knees, and something I can't remember. So that's <laughs> one of the things that go out on you is your eyes. And it's basically due to the fact that our bodies were only designed to last 40 years. 
And then after that, things start to go. And if you're lucky, they they all go uh, at a slow rate. But if any one of them goes off the cliff, you're, you've had it. Now then, there are two problems with eyes. And that is, as they age, what can you do? And if you start off and something drastic happens, what can you do? And so one of my favorite topics is cataract removal. And it turns out that the, when your body is being formed, very early stages, the eye, the retina of the eye, is formed from uh, on the outside, and it, the whole thing kind of folds in. And so, and the lens is formed out of skin cells. In the process of forming the eye, the skin cells do not grow from the inside out, and the dead skin cells fluff off. That's what leaves the, the ring in the bathtub is the dead skin cells. The skin cells grow from the outside in, such as in your lens. These dead uh, cells collect, and that's known as cataracts. And it's an inevitable process of aging as these clumps of dead skin cells form. And what they do is that they'll stick something inside of your eye it's an ultrasonic device, and it dissolves the lens. They suck that out, and then they can put in a plastic lens. Now, at first, so you had to make a choice. You want to be able to see far away or close up, and that would determine what kind of artificial lens would put in. They would put in, and now they've gotten clever enough so they can figure out how to make the inserted lens not uniform but have different regions that will focus. Some of them focus up close, some of them focus up far away. So you have a cataract procedure done and still be able to see far away and close up too. But as you get older, those skin cells are going to accumulate in your lens and cause you to have to have cataract surgery eventually. Now, as far as the retina goes, if something's wrong with the retina or from the outset or as things progress, they're getting better and better at actually equivalent of cochlear implants. And there was one device that I mentioned, and they will actually stick this in the back of your eye in the retina. It has a a complicated process. They have, they're able to send a, uh, from the light that hits this device, which is in your eye, they can communicate with it through infrared rays to recharge the battery and actually produce using nanotechnology or actually it's microelectronics, not just two or three different regions of vision, but thousands. Of course, it can't at this point compete with 110 million sensory cells but they can actually help you form a, an image. And ju- I just thought of it. Uh, it could even be possible to make you uh, sense different regions of the spectrum than we are currently experiencing. So you could see in the dark or see ultraviolet rays or whatever. I, I don't know if they're working on that now, but eventually it will occur. So there are very exciting things that are going on. Now, another area is some Causes of blindness are due to genetic defects. And so they're using CRISPR technology to go into 
retinal cells and address problems that might be due, uh, due to defects in the genes. Amazing stuff. So, so, so we might be able to look forward to someday having uh, uh, eyesight like the mantis shrimp, <laughs> being able to, uh, to, to see polarized light and uh, a, a broad spectrum to see the world in a different way. And so, Ben, looking towards the future, um, you know, it's, it's really looking like our senses are sort of merging with technology. And, um, you know, we're having a sort of, I suppose, augmented vision is, is, is a very hot topic. What, what's that about? Aug augmented vision is exemplified by night vision goggles. And you can buy a pretty decent pair of night vision goggles for a couple hundred dollars. It used to be that they are very expensive and very cumbersome and all, but that but now they're the technology is moving forward very fast, and so you can buy these things that can pick up a heat. So in the complete darkness, you can locate the living organisms, and incidentally, the pit viper snakes already do this. Have been doing it for millions of years. They have infrared sensors in their pits in the, their noses and they can they can not only pick up heat but they can pick up the absence of heat so in the case of a rabbit they strike the rabbit and then the rabbit goes off to die and they have to find it before it gets cool in the case of a frog that it would look like a an even heat background with a cold spot in the middle so they can actually detect cold spots frogs as well as hot things like dying rabbit. Now then, that would be called augmented vision, and they have these in cars now. They have something called LIDAR, light detection and rate ranging in automobiles. And so you can uh, look at the, your car's screen and see stuff completely invisible to you if you look out the windshield. Now then, synthetic vision is something that you can get for your airplane. And so this came about from flight simulators, computer-based flight simulators for your desktop computer. You can buy one for about $60. You can buy a yoke and foot pedals and throttle controls. These are very, very sophisticated, and they imitate these different planes. And with each flight simulator, you get a dozen or so airplanes, helicopters, things like that. And so the computer generates what you would see if you looked out the front windshield of your airplane and simulates this. And so you can take off and fly around, look out, see the landing field come up. You can actually look from outside the plane. They have developed something similar to this for your real airplane. It's called uh, synthetic vision. And so even what it will do is it will generate what you would look at, see on a little screen in the cockpit what you would see if you looked out the windshield. Well, this is not so important for daytime flying, but if you're flying in a cloud or at night, you could look at the synthetic vision and you could see what you would be able to see out the windshield of your airplane when uh, you were flying in total darkness. It's an amazing thing, uh, much more sophisticated than what you would get with your $60 flight simulator <laughs> without the airplane. <laughs> So who knows what's coming next? But anyway, that's what's around now. 
Well, that's great, Ben. It sounds like you've got uh, lots of material for the third edition of your book. <laughs> but if you're looking for Ben's second edition, the second edition of The Everyday Physics of Hearing and Vision, go to the IOP Science website. Thanks for being on the podcast, Ben. Oh, thank you very much. This has been very interesting. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Ben DeMeo, Costas Costarellis, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest edition of the Physics World Stories podcast, which charts the scientific triumphs and sad demise of the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. Host Andrew Glester is joined by three leading astronomers to talk about the iconic telescope's myriad roles in science and popular culture, including the search for alien life and as a setting for a James Bond film. You can find that episode in the podcast section of the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Arecibo Observatory, a scientific giant that fell to Earth. Physics World.